Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege uh, of being able to assemble like this and uh, in peace and study your word and learn more uh, not only about who you are, but to learn more of uh, how you would have us to, to live our lives to your glory. We're thankful for opportunities to, uh, to serve and opportunities to, uh, to help others to serve. We're thankful for uh, the, uh, the Dwyers and the work that they have done in India. We pray for their continued safety and good health as they travel. We are thankful for uh, the work that John and Troy will be doing in the Philippines, and we pray also for their uh, health and their safety as they travel also and for uh, the success of their work. And we're thankful that um, uh, we have others uh, back among us uh, who have uh, been away, and we give you uh, praise and, and honor for blessing them in that way and us uh, with their presence. And we pray, Father, that you would bless those of our number here who are still struggling uh, with illness or injuries, those that are recovering, especially those that are unable to be out yet. We pray that you would bless them and uh, help them to recover. We thank you for every opportunity that you that you give us to be servants, and we pray that uh, you would strengthen us and help us to take advantage of those opportunities and use them to your glory. All of these things we pray because of and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> All right, we are nearing the end uh, of our study of the Gospel of John today and uh, next Sunday we'll finish we'll finish that study. The next quarter will be a study of the book of Romans. And so if you want to get a head start on that, you're certainly free to do that. Uh, we'll study that for one quarter and um, looking forward to, to that study together. Before we look at John chapter 20 specifically, if you want to hold your place there, uh, I'd like you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15 will kind of lay a foundation for uh, what John chapter 20 is about, the resurrection of Jesus. The reason why I wanted to start with 1 Corinthians 15 is because that chapter tells us why John 20 is important. Uh, of course, you know, if it's in the Word of God, it's important. I understand that. But Paul goes a lot deeper into that. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus and its importance in 1 Corinthians 15. So I wanted to kind of start there and, and lay that foundation before we look at the facts uh, themselves. There were individuals in the church at Corinth that were denying that the dead were ever raised. Uh, they were denying the concept of the resurrection of the dead. They 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 had accepted a, a blanket uh, doctrine that there was no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. It just didn't happen. And Corinth, of course, was a church plagued with, with problems, and this was one of them. Paul uh, wanted to correct it. And so he does that in 1 Corinthians 15. And in the, in the process of 
correcting their, uh, their false idea, he said a lot about why the resurrection of Jesus specifically is not only important, it, it's vital. It, it, is, it is the singular event on which the validity of the Christian religion hinges. It's that important. You remove the resurrection of Jesus from the dead out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity. You just don't have it. And, and Paul will make that point in very clear terms. And so I wanted to kind of lay that foundation. So we're not going to go through the entire chapter, of course. But the first thing that Paul does with the church there is remind them of what the gospel is, what the gospel is comprised of. And specifically, he said in verses 1 through 4, that the gospel message is essentially the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he said to them that um, in verse 1, that this is the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you'll be saved, if you hold it fast. So he starts by saying, you know, this, this is the message that you had already accepted. I preached the resurrection to you. And you received it. You embraced it. You accepted it. And so he then asks later, verse 12, <clears throat> Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? So if that's the message I preach to you, that's the message you receive, that's the message in which uh, you are standing as Christians, why are, some now, why are some of you now questioning that? Not only questioning it, denying it. And so beginning in 12 is where he lays out how important the resurrection of Christ is. So he says in 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, in other words, if that blanket statement is true, then Christ has not been raised. Right? That makes sense. That's logical. If there's no resurrection of the dead at all, then that would include the fact that Jesus was not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. Vain is, is a word that means it's empty, it's useless, it's worthless. So if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is worth absolutely nothing and so is your faith. Now, how would you like to be in a position where somebody says, and accurately so, your faith is, is worthless. It has no value. Well, Paul said if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then that's a true statement. Your faith has no value. He goes on, verse 15, we are even found to be uh, false witnesses of God or misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. Okay, so Paul said we've been preaching that message. And so if Christ hasn't been raised, then we're false prophets. We're false witnesses. We have attributed to God something that God didn't do. 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith, again, is futile, worthless, useless. And notice the end of And you are still in your sins. A lot of times when we talk about salvation from sin, we focus uh, a lot on the role that the death of Jesus played in that. And don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, dis, I'm not dismissing that. 
If it were not for the blood shed in his death, we would be lost because we are justified uh, through his blood. Revelation 1 verse 7, 1 verse 5. So I'm not discounting that. <clears throat> but we also need to remember that it wasn't just his death. It wasn't merely his death that made our salvation possible. Jesus could have died in the same exact way that he did. But if three days later he wasn't raised from the dead, then his death would have had no merit. That's what Paul is saying here. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. Your sins haven't been, haven't been taken care of if Jesus was not raised from the dead. So that's why I said earlier, this is kind of the linchpin uh, thing with regard to uh, our salvation. Verse 18, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, those that have died as Christians, they're just dead. Or they're just gone. There's, there's, no, there's no hope of anything in the future if Jesus was not raised. Um, and then 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Nobody in the world deserves more pity than the Christian if Jesus was not raised from the dead because we have placed the entirety of our confidence and our hope, our lives. We've, 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 we've put everything on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so if he and, and, and the sacrifices made, Think about the sacrifices made throughout history by those who, who claimed allegiance to Jesus. Think about how many people have been martyred because they embraced the resurrection of Jesus and would not deny it. Paul says nobody deserves more pity than those people if they made those kinds of sacrifices for something that wasn't even true. All right? So that's so Paul's making the case that what we're about to look at in John chapter 20 is of utmost importance to the Christian. It's what gives Christianity, it's what gives our lives, our hope, our faith, its power. All right? So now, back to John chapter 20. Last week we um, we looked at uh, studied his death and his burial, and now on the first day of the week, verse one begins. Mary Magdalene came to the early while it was still dark, saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. John only mentions here Mary Magdalene. Um, she was not the only one who came to the tomb that day. Others will be mentioned in a moment. But um, Luke mentions in Luke 24, verse 10, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and others. It's not that John was inaccurate. He's just focusing on Mary and the encounter that Jesus would have with her. So she comes and sees that the tomb has been disturbed, okay? The, the, the stone has been rolled away from the entrance. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, believed to be John, the one whom Jesus loved, 
and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, she doesn't know what's happened. She has surmised that they, whoever they is, are, um, have, have removed the body. So Peter, verse 3, went out with the other disciple, again, probably John. They were going toward the tomb. It's interesting how John, um, who was there, of course, describes uh, what happened. They race to the tomb. They run to the tomb, both of them running together, verse 4. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John was a faster runner than Peter. Okay, may not have known that. But here's the interesting thing, and, and again, the picture that he paints is, is, uh, uh, is graphic. So John outruns Peter, reaches the tomb first, verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So, so John has outrun Peter. He gets to the tomb first, and, and he sees it open, and he comes, and, and, it's, and he stops in the doorway. And, and, he, and he kneels down and he looks in, and, and he, but he didn't go in. So he's at the doorway looking in, and he sees the, the grave clothes lying there. And Peter, and this is just like Peter's personality, he just barrels right in. Peter came, verse 6, following him, and went into the tomb and saw the, the linen cloth lying there. The face cloth, which had been on uh, his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, and he saw and believed. All right, so an interesting picture. Now, here's, here's one of the things that I think is interesting about that uh, account, is the care that John took, guided, of course, by the Spirit, but the care that he took, in describing exactly what they did and what they saw. They came, they saw the, the open tomb, they saw the, the, the grave clothes. Uh, he mentions their location. He mentions how they were placed. All of that. Now, one of the things that that does is it begs for scrutiny. When someone says, when someone comes and starts to tell you a story, and they give you detail after detail after detail, even down to the most minute little details of whatever they're telling you, and the more amazing the story is, and the more detail they give you, doesn't that give you with each of those details something that if you're disbelieving, you can go check out? You can investigate that? I, I suspect that may be why a lot of this detail was given. Because some were, some were going to just, on the, on, the, on the surface, not believe it. And so the detail that's given basically says, check me out on this. Luke does that in the book of Acts. Uh, one of the great things about the book of Acts is how detailed Luke, the writer of it, is in describing things. 
Luke mentions, I don't know how many dozens of specific cities, specific individuals, not just religious people, but civil rulers and civil authority officials that are mentioned throughout the book and this location and it and, and where it is in relation to this. And Luke gives so much detail like that that basically begs somebody to go check him out and see if what he's saying is true. William Ramsay uh, from, I don't know, a century or more ago, Alan, I think, was a, a, a became to be a famous um, archaeologist, a historian, who started out a skeptic. And, one of, and, and what he wanted to do was focus on the book of Acts. And he set out to prove, because of all the detail that, that Luke re recorded in Acts, he was going to take every detail and go and, and ultimately prove that the book of Acts was uh, a farce, that, that, it was, uh, that it just wasn't true, that it couldn't be true, because he was going to show all these details that Luke recorded that could not have been true and weren't true. By the time he was done, he had converted himself to a believer because everything, every detail he checked out, in what Luke recorded, checked out to be accurate. And, uh, and, but my point in that is Luke basically says, check me out on this because he gives all the detail. Well, John seems to be that here. Here's what we saw. Here's, here's what it looked like. Now, if people wanted to question Peter and John, they could pull them aside separately and question them. What'd you see? You tell me what you saw, and then you, you tell me what you saw. And so it, it begged for scrutiny. Uh, he's, he's setting himself up to be checked out, but he's not afraid of that because he knows what he saw. All right, Gideon 11, back to John 20. We have uh, a listing, not necessarily a listing, but a, a record of Jesus appearing conversation that they that they had and we'll get to that in just a moment but there were several uh incidents of jesus appearing to various people during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven and i've listed those, are those on the handout did i list those on the handout the resurrection appearances okay we're, we're not going to look at all these these texts but just um uh, you know just familiarize yourself with those Mary Magdalene, of course, we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, Matthew mentions other women. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus from Luke chapter 24. Very interesting account where Jesus encounters two disciples unnamed. Well, maybe one of them was. Um, but two disciples, nonetheless, that, um, uh, that Jesus encounters as they're walking down the road from Jerusalem to a little village outside Jerusalem called Emmaus. And he talks with them there. And um, it's the interesting thing about that encounter is you have, you have two people teaching Jesus about Jesus. Because the Lord encounters them and he says, asks them, you know, what, they're, what, what are you talking about? And they said, you know, you're the only one that hadn't been around here the last, the last week. That doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem. And he says, what things? And so they tell him about Jesus of Nazareth. You know, 
they start telling things about Jesus, but they're talking to Jesus, but they don't know they're talking to Jesus. Mark says, incidentally, about that account that Jesus appeared to them in another form. I don't know what that means exactly, but it, I think it does explain why disciples of Jesus would not recognize Jesus as Jesus. Um, uh, evidently, he altered his appearance in some fashion. But nonetheless, so they have this discussion, and then when they get to the house where they're going, uh, Jesus then teaches them about himself. Luke says that he began at, at uh, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, I think that's about verse 27. Now that'd be a sermon you'd want to hear, wouldn't it? To hear Jesus expound from Moses and all the prophets about the things concerning himself. And then when he finished, the text says he revealed himself to them. And then they realized who he was. And then he left. Interesting appearance. Uh, you've got others, uh, Peter, uh, Luke 24. You've got the ten apostles without Thomas in here in John 20. We'll look at that uh, in a moment. Then the eleven with, with Thomas present. John 21, there'll be seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus will appear to. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 mentions others. We didn't look at this earlier, but it's there in the early verses of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul mentions that he appeared to James, the Lord's half-brother. Then he appeared, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, to more than 500 brethren at one time. And then last of all, Paul says he appeared to me as one born out of due season. Now, of course, the Lord's appearance to Paul was not during the, the, the 40 days. That, that came some years later. But nonetheless, it was the resurrected Lord that he saw on the road to Damascus. And then, you know, the, then at the time the Great Commission is given, there's another appearance that Jesus made. So again, all of these appearances that the New Testament mentions, the gospel accounts specifically, you know, those, those were people that could have been consulted too. Um, you know, so if, if somebody wanted to, to hear from eyewitnesses, the gospel writer said, here's some eyewitnesses. You, you want to go interview these people? You want to go ask them what they saw? Here they are. Here are their names. So it, it, all, it all was susceptible to scrutiny. Now, back to John. John focuses on Mary, who, according to verse 11, stood weeping outside the tomb. And, and she looked in and she saw uh, two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they laid him. So she's still in the dark about what happened. She thinks somebody's stolen the body which incidentally is going to be the story that, that the enemies want perpetuated, that somebody took the body. And having said this, she turned around, verse 14, and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was him. And he said to her, why, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She thinks it's the gardener. And so she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and, that, that I'll, and I'll take him away. And Jesus called her by name. And she realized who it was. 
Verse 17 has been uh, confusing to, to, to folks uh, over the years. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's, it's because of not a, not a bad translation, but one that's not perhaps as accurate as it could be because if you, if you, if you tidy it up, it makes more sense. Because some, uh, some, of the, some translations have Jesus saying to her, Touch me not. Do not touch me. Because I must uh, go back to, um, I, because I've not yet ascended to my Father. And so some have said, well, why would Jesus tell Mary, don't touch me? And then later in this very same chapter, he's going to say to Thomas, touch me. You know, what, what's, what was, what's, what's the deal? Why, why would he do that? Literally, what Jesus said to Mary is, do not cling to me. Don't keep holding on to me. If you really get the thrust of the, the grammar in, in the text, uh, the, the Greek grammar, that's the idea. He's not saying, don't touch me. He's saying, stop clinging to me. So you can, then with him saying that, what she's doing. She realizes when he speaks to her, when he calls her by name, she now understands this, this is Jesus. So she has, she has come over and, and has wrapped herself around him. And he says, Mary, you can't keep holding on to me because I've got to go back. All right. So he understood evidently what she was thinking. She, she was glad to have him back, but he wants her to know that he can't stay. He's got, he's got to go back. So it's not that he's saying, ah, don't touch me. And Mary, you can't keep holding on to me. You've got to let me go. Because I've got to send back to my father. And so she goes and announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now, 19. <clears throat> 19 through 29 records the appearance of Jesus to the apostles. Two, two appearances. The first one with Thomas not there. And the second one with Thomas there. So let's talk the first meeting, 19 through 23. Thomas is not there. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, all right, so the, the previous events had happened in the morning. First day of the week, uh, morning, they go to the tomb. Jesus is not there. You have these initial appearances. Uh, and now in the evening, the door being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, don't, don't forget that, that, you know, the tensions are still high in Jerusalem. We're just three days removed from, from that major event of crucifixion where the Jewish leadership, uh, you know, ramrodded Jesus through the Roman authorities and got him crucified. And when we talked about a few weeks ago uh, the arrest of Jesus in John 18, we called attention to the fact that in Mark's account, at the time of the arrest of Jesus, that evidently the soldiers tried to apprehend others because Mark recorded how one of the disciples had been grabbed by a soldier, but he left his garment in his hand and took off. So tensions are, tensions are still high. And these, these are the closest disciples of Jesus, so they're hiding. They're, they're afraid of what might happen to them because they were associated with Jesus. So Jesus comes in among them and says, Peace be with you. Now, 
Luke's account of this appearance uh, indicates that his appearance to them in that room was was sudden and unexpected, and it and it caused fear in the disciples. Turn over to Luke twenty four. Luke 24, verse 37. 36 begins the paragraph. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. But notice what Jesus says to them. Why are you troubled? And why, what? What does he say? Why, what? Yeah, why, 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 why do you doubt? Why have doubts arisen in your hearts? Now, who's he talking to? The disciples, right? How many of them at this point? Who's not there? Thomas isn't there. Now, you know, I... I've I've referred to doubting Thomas before because that's kind of how he's known, but um, Thomas wasn't the only one that doubted initially. So let's not necessarily give Thomas a bad rap uh, and give the other disciples a pass, because Jesus says to them, "Why have doubts arisen in your hearts?" And then what does he show them? Same same thing he's going to show Thomas. He shows them his hands. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Because the Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me having. So it was a bodily resurrection. So I'm just saying that. You know, did, does Thomas deserve to be labeled as one who doubted? Well, sure. Yeah, because he did. But so did the others initially. And Jesus did the same thing with them that he did with Thomas. Now, back to John 20. <clears throat> He showed them his hands and his side, verse 20. And the disciples were glad. So peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And then he does this, uh, um, you know, it's kind of a compact version, if you will, of the Great Commission. It's not the Great Commission as such, but it's kind of a compact version. He says, I'm I'm sending you out as the Father had sent me out. Now this breathing on them in 2023, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. I think that was a symbolic uh, gesture uh, because I don't believe they actually did, in reality, receive the Holy Spirit until Acts 2 when the Spirit comes upon them uh, in uh, in that place in Acts 2 verse 4. So I think, I think what Jesus was doing here was a symbolic thing to indicate that they are going to receive the Holy Spirit. It just wasn't going to be that day. You know, Jesus did, did things periodically that, that were symbolic. That, that um, Wasn't there an occasion when he healed someone's blindness and he, and he made mud? You know, he, he spit in dirt, made mud, and put it on the, on the person's eyes. Did he have to do that in order to heal a person's blindness? Is that a necessity? No. It, it, was, it was just a symbolic 
gesture to, to emphasize what he was doing. Uh, I think that's what's happening here. Uh, I don't think they actually did receive the Spirit as he was speaking of it here until Acts 2. But this was in preparation for that, a symbolic gesture preparing them for what would happen in actuality later. Now, the second meeting with the disciples, beginning in verse 24, is when Thomas is present. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger in the mark of the nails, place my hand in his side, I will not believe. So all he's saying is, I want to see what you saw. And so he gets that opportunity. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Now here is, this, this is, you know, all right, so you're, you're a week plus later. Thomas is, is evidently living with, with these doubts in his heart throughout that time. But Jesus came in. Again, although the doors were locked, he came in, stood among them, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. What a, what a moment um, where Thomas expresses uh, his belief. And notice how patient Jesus was with him. Um, you know, I, in, in my impatience, and I, I readily admit that that's my, one of my struggles, you know, I might have been tempted to say, you know what, you should have believed your brothers. You should have believed these guys. You know, why are you living, why are you having to live eight days in doubt? But Jesus was very patient with Thomas, and he gave him the evidence that he needed. And um, and and the light came on with Thomas, and he expressed his his adoration to Jesus. And so Jesus responded <clears throat> and said, "Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." That statement takes us directly into John's purpose statement. We've, we've referenced John 20, verses 30 and 31 several times in this uh, now six-month study of John's account. Because this is, what, this is what John was writing for. He said, I'm writing these things to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that in believing you might have life through his name. That's exactly what Jesus was saying to Thomas. Thomas, Jesus said, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen? Yeah, that, that's, that was right. That's true. Until he saw, Thomas didn't believe. So Jesus said, Thomas, you've believed because you've seen. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know who that includes? You and me. 
Jesus announced and pronounced a blessing on you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so John said, that's why I wrote. To, to enable people to receive that blessing. People who haven't seen, but they can read. And they can read about what other people were able to see. When they read and are able to, with the mind's eye, see in that sense, they're able to receive great blessing. And so John, with, with, that, with that climactic statement, and, and I think you could make an argument that John 20, 26 through 29, is, is the climactic moment in John's gospel account where Thomas exclaims, My Lord, my God. And John the writer then says, that's why I wrote. So that you could reach that same conclusion. Not because you with your physical eyes have seen what Thomas saw, but because you can read about what those people saw. So John, concluding this section anyway, describes the, the, the purpose of his book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John says, you know, I was, I was very selective in what I wrote. I didn't record everything that Jesus did. He'll say in the next chapter, and we'll look at that next week, uh, using some hyperbole, but making a point. He said, you know what? If, if everything that Jesus did were written down, the world couldn't hold the volumes. So John says, I, 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 didn't, I didn't write everything that Jesus did. I didn't write everything that I saw Jesus do. I was selective. There are a lot of other signs that he did in the presence of the disciples that I didn't tell you about. But he was purposely selective. The things that I did write about, I did for a specific purpose. Because I believe that the things that I recorded are enough to produce faith in someone who reads them. I think the things that I've recorded, John says, are sufficient for somebody to read them and come away confident that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. All right. Some lessons, practical applications. <clears throat> Regarding the resurrection, and we've covered this before, so I'm not going to go through it in, in detail uh, again, but just by way of reminder. With regard to the resurrection, as, as people would analyze it, there are basically three possibilities. Because uh, the, you know, the, the, the early skeptic would, would have agreement with the disciples, that three days after the Lord's body was placed in the tomb, it was gone. You, you've got skeptics today that say, oh, none of that ever happened, because Jesus never even lived to begin with. Well, that's, I'm, I'm not even going to address uh, that, uh, because it's, it's so contrary to the historical evidence that it's not even really worth a lot of response, though, though it can be proven. 
But <clears throat> among the early skeptics especially, <clears throat> they would all agree that the body wasn't in the tomb three days later. So you have to figure out, all right, so what happened to it? There are basically three possibilities. The, uh, the friends of Jesus out. The enemies of Jesus took it out. Or he came out on his own. It. Those are your, those are your three possibilities. Some have conjectured, well, they just went to the wrong tomb. Okay. They're going to forget what the tomb is in three days' time? Come on. So, when you analyze those possibilities, here's what you have. Let's talk about the enemies. Would the enemies of Jesus have removed his body from the tomb? Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they? The enemies were going to were, go, were going to take every step that they could, take every precaution that they could to make sure that that body right where it had been placed. Why? Why would the enemies make sure that the body wasn't moved? What had Jesus been saying? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to come out of that tomb in three days. And so if they had moved the body, that action would have made it look like the very thing that they were trying to keep people from believing. So it doesn't make any sense at all that the enemies would have moved the body. They wanted it to stay exactly where it was. So you can't pin it on the enemies. All right, so what about the friends? Would the friends have removed the body? Well, if they wanted to, they couldn't. They, they couldn't have moved it if they tried. Why? It was sealed and guarded. That was one of the precautions that the enemies had taken at the direction of, of the leadership. You have a guard, they were told, go and make it secure. The tomb sealed and guarded. If, if one of the friends had tried to go, they couldn't have done it. Now, in addition to that, and I think that's the, the major reason to discount the friends removing the body, but another reason is this. Um, why would the disciples, the apostles specifically, ultimately give their lives preaching what they knew was a dead imposter when they wouldn't give their lives for him when he was very much alive? What happened in the garden when he was arrested? Where'd they go? They, they took off. But now... And, and, and the friends, because they knew he's not risen from the dead because we took the body and hid it, now we're going to give our lives in defense of a dead imposter that we know is a dead imposter? That doesn't make sense either. And, incidentally, uh, back to the enemies, if the enemies had the body, they could have stopped Christianity before it got off the ground. What did Peter proclaim on the day of Pentecost? Right in the heart of Jerusalem. This man Jesus was raised from the dead and we are all witnesses of it. Acts 2, 26 and following. You think some enemy, if they had had the body, would have said, oh wait, excuse me, what did you say? I want to hear that again. I want to get that clear as I can. What did you just say? He was raised from the dead. Are witnesses of his resurrection. Oh, really? Well, then what do you call this? If the enemies had the body, they could have produced it. 
and stopped Christianity before it started. And do you think they would have if they could? I guarantee you. So didn't have it. Friends didn't have it. What does that leave? He came out of the tomb. The tomb on his own by the power of God. All right. The importance of the resurrection, very quickly, because uh, we're about out of time. The resurrection gives life to our hope. Peter in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4 said, We have been born again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The reason why we have a confident expectation of future reward when this life is over is because of an empty tomb. That's what Peter says gives life to our hope. Our hope is alive because of his resurrection. Number two, the resurrection provides the power of forgiveness. We already mentioned that in 1 Corinthians 15. There are other passages that illustrate that too. Peter in 1 Peter 3 verse 21, baptism now saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What gives baptism its power? Well, a lot of things, but one of them is the resurrection of Jesus, according to Peter. His resurrection proves his deity. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1 verse 4. And his resurrection affirms our future resurrection. He is the first fruits, uh, Paul would call him in 1 Corinthians 15. So because he was raised, we can be too and will be. All right? What a great event. And we, we've touched only the him. All right. Thank you much. We'll look at uh, the last chapter next Lord's Day, God willing. Thank you.